What's up, everybody? Um, before we get started, Jake and I were just talking and we were talking about our sound check. And uh, I got to have this microphone. You can see uh, just the tip uh, right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Jake, uh, we were saying, you know, whatever, he's got a booming voice. And I said, uh, he's got that Barry White thing going on. You said what? I said, you know, I prefer, I prefer if you're going to do that, go Chuck D. Like he's got my favorite, you know, like booming MC voice. So I like that. But uh, that might be flagrant. I don't know. Yeah, right. Um, we see you got a little uh, background going on there. Is that? Yeah, yeah man. Always, uh, always into something in this household. Right. If, but, um, if you've been a, a watcher of us in the past, you might have seen. Their cameos periodically. Jake's dog is a regular, but um, one time his mom made an appearance too, which was pretty dope. Like I gotta say, like, <laughs> and let <laughs> let the record show. Uh, and I've said this before, you know, folks think that you know media personnel. I've, I'm not a blogger. I've never been a blogger, but folks like to think that, you know, folks that cover the culture like live in their mom's basement. Uh, that happened when my mom made a cameo. I was home for the holidays. So, uh, you know, don't get twisted. <laughs> and, and your dog has made uh, a few appearances as well. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Just just a couple. But, uh, you know, there's no, no shame in it, man. You say you, you're not a blogger. You ever watch uh, Super Lover, um, you know, the um, the YouTube rapper? He says, I'm not a rapper. I'm not a rapper. No, <laughs> no <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but that's funny. Yeah, I... Uh, I don't know. You and I have talked about that before. Like, you know, my uh, my writing career started in 2001, 2002. The term blog didn't exist. And one of my and, I, and you've cringed too. like when somebody says, oh, this is, you know, he's a blogger. I'm like, oh, uh, no, nah. that's that's one thing like, uh, you know, that's a term I just don't care for. Why, why is that, though? Why is that? Cause I'm a professional, man. I've put in 10,000 hours. I think I'm on my, if I, you know, I, I think that I'm probably more on 30 to 40,000 hours at this point. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've made a livelihood doing this and I take a lot of pride, not just in getting paid, but when you do that, you have to fit into an industry. That means that other people, you know, can work with your writing. And for me as somebody that, you know, has been a significant part of three different publications online, but also contributed to print. Like I just, that's, I'm a very, uh, our colleague Justin Hunt once called me nauseatingly humble. And I, mm. I've been working on that. But one, one thing that I will always kind of check on is don't call me a blogger. You know, that's, yes. that's, that's like calling, you know, an NBA player, you know, like a, a hooper. You're like, no, there's a lot more that comes with this than just making foul shots and threes. I love that. I love that answer. And let, let's re remember this because there's something that we're going to talk about later on today. And there's a, a reference that the New York Times made uh, in connection with someone that we're going to discuss that rubbed me the wrong way for the exact same reason. Uh, but but I, I love that. I love that. It's a great segue. So what's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I've got Jay Payne our editor-in-chief, and together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. So, um, yeah, man, uh, we got a lot to talk about today. You know, we started a little bit, but, you know, I think it's only fair that we first pay our respects to someone that we lost a week ago today. We're recording this on Sunday. Um, 
you know, we were gearing up for the Super Bowl. You know, typically uh, Super Bowl Sundays are very, very slow in terms of media consumption. Everybody's out like doing tailgating or, you know, buying food, getting ready for the the big game. And, uh, you know, that day is is almost like an American holiday at this point. You know, it's probably one of the biggest holidays, unofficial holidays right now, I would say. And around what, 3.34, 4.30, I started getting texts and, you know, we were both out. I was in New Orleans. You were at a party in Philly, right? No, actually when it happened, um, I was sitting on my couch. I am in the midst of getting married and was having a very deep dive into all the logistics that go on with that. And I'm somebody, I think like you, often my phone is on silent unless there's a certain, um, you know, something to watch for. But that day, to your point, even beyond football fandom, I think a lot of people just know that the at the the traffic and the, the attention online is limited. So you're not going to see new music. You're not going to see a lot of things. And we had covered something in the morning on AFH, but I was very much with the mindset of, of being done for the day and got up and walked over to my phone to see, I believe the count was 28 um, text messages and a missed call. And yeah, it was, we learned, uh, you know, I guess I can say it. We learned that um, one of my hip hop heroes, uh, Dave, that's what I call him. That's how I knew him as Dave from De La Soul had passed away at the age of 54. Um, and yeah, I think you and I learned very close together with that. Yeah, man. Uh, we've talked about this before. This is one of the worst things about our job because um, you know, we have real love and respect for, for this culture. And the reason why we're doing this is not for money, but because of the passion. And we grew up with this. A lot of these guys, like you said, I think hero is a great word for it, are our heroes. And we've been fortunate enough to make some peers and, and even friends, you know. Um, so to get nose like this is like deeply impactful. And unlike others where you can start to kind of mourn and grieve and process, we first got to react and think about, okay, how are we going to frame this person's life that has meant so much, so much to us and so much to so many people in 500 words and do it in like 30 minutes uh, to 60 minutes. And, you know, how are we going to do yeah. justice to a legacy like that, you know, beyond even starting to think about what it means to us. And, and way less than this in that point. And, you know, a few things I'll add to that is, you know, I don't do this for money, um, nor do you. We make a livelihood, you know, as I just mentioned, I have for over 20 years in this field. And there have been times in my life where I've had to do other things to supplement that that passion and that goal. Um, but I looked at this particular moment and I found out about it um, an hour or so after it happened and we needed to come up with an obituary, not just a new, this isn't just news because you can look at what's trending on Twitter or Instagram and, and know what happened, but it's important to offer a little bit of context. And we've had this challenge time and time again of, you know, trying to capture with a limited amount of time and the words available, what somebody meant. And on this particular one with the loss of Dave, I mean, there wasn't a ton of information. There still isn't a ton of information, but also not because I could give a damn about the football game. And I, I live in Philadelphia and I say that I'm originally from Pittsburgh, but you know that if you want to let somebody know that somebody important is gone, you have a very tight window on a day like that where the rest of the world is turning off their computers and turning on their televisions. And so it was 
you know, I've, I've done this at this point dozens of times. You've had to memorial, you know, eulogize or, or write a memorial for somebody or an obituary. This one will go down in history for me as one of the hardest, um, especially coming out of an intense discussion at home and into covering somebody I knew, somebody who I hold in the dearest um, artistically, and then, you know, feeling, facing that. And uh, yeah, man, it was, you know, even before you get to Dave's life, that challenge is, um, is, is, is no, no easy task. And it's more than just a recitation of facts, right? Anybody can do that. You can go to Wikipedia and do that. Part of the reason why we're in this space is because we believe we bring a narrative, uh, a context to this that other people might not. And so we want to be true to that and really honor the person as well, you know. And so you talk about Dave having been a hero for you. So tell me about how De La Soul, uh, you know, what what they've meant to you um, in your hip in your your life as a hip hop fan. Yeah, I mean, I've I've said on this podcast, and I said to you the day that you and I first met, um, almost eleven years, almost uh, I guess twelve years ago doesn't matter. 2000, 2013, I think we met. Um, I have two favorite groups, you know, or, or, and two two favorite hip hop albums, Gangstar and De La Soul. And I go back and forth all the time on, you know, De La Soul is dead. Balloon Mind State is right there for me. And then and then Hard to Earn by Gangstar. And De La, you know, I'm, I'm 39 years old. Um, so I became a hip hop fan, you know, to the fullest where I identified that that became my my lifestyle and my identity um, the same year that Stakes is High dropped. And at that time, you know, the back catalog on Tommy Boy was readily available at record stores. So, you know, those four albums at that point um, just gave me a pathway of individuality. You know, for me coming into adolescence, I loved De La and that they, they rapped about things that I could relate to, some things that I couldn't. Um, there was a coded language there. And then you'll hear this with a lot of people and different artists, but the samples that they used on those albums, especially the three produced by Prince Paul, you know, they had a reference point. And it's not just samples, it's the way that De La delivered their lines. There's a lot of, um, you know, lyrical cues and references, but, you know, it could, it tied into my parents' um, music collection as well as stuff that I heard on the radio and stuff that I knew about. And it just, the endless possibility of hip hop felt very much alive in De La Soul. And I got, I went to some other concerts first, but I got to see them the first time I went to a huge light bulb changing for me. Hip hop show was in, I think the summer of 99, maybe 2000 for spit kicker, which De La headlined. And that was just amazing to watch those guys perform in my hometown of Pittsburgh it was it was one of the first times where I got to see hip hop live even better than it was on the album, especially with those three and the way they played together. So, yeah, I mean, from that from that germination on over the next, you know, almost 30 years, De La is everything to me. And, you know, in the 10 years you and I have been working together, we've gotten to celebrate a really unique narrative of De La triumphing against the industry, against technology against the powers that be and you know even with the kickstarter era in 2015 this has been a season of, of a rally cry for de la and you know dave has been a big part of that i mean he ran the group social media account and was very instrumental we can talk about that but yeah that's my relationship but, but what about you 
Yeah, mine is um, is, is different in that, you know, I really kind of came of age with Dela. We're, we're very similar in age. Uh, Dave was 54 when he passed. I'm 53. So back in 1989, when, um, me, when uh, Three Feet High and Rising dropped, specifically me, myself, and I, I'm a freshman in college. And, you know, that's a time when you're coming of age, you're becoming an adult, you've left home, you're starting to discover your identity and forge your own identity as a person. And to see Dela, who had broken broken the ranks from what like, you know, was kind of typical and rap at that point, really establish a whole different path for being a hip hop fan in terms of what you talked about, um, how you rap, the, the, the samples being used, the, the fashion, the attitude was groundbreaking. You know, um, it allowed for people who were not easily, you know, fitting into one particular box or another, like myself, to flourish and like embrace our identity as as like kind of a unique individual. So that album was a game changer for me. Um, but when De La Soul is dead dropped, you know, a year or two later, I think I've told this story before, you know, I was actually fortunate enough to have gone to the record store on a Thursday and it was there. And I was like, yo, I didn't know New Daylight was out. And I picked it up and then went back and was telling friends and everything. And like everyone was trying to find it. No one could find it. And it turned out that the record store had made a mistake. It was supposed to come out on Tuesday. But back in that, that time, the shipments came early and, you know, you held it back so you could put it first thing on Tuesday. So I had the distinction of being the only person on campus who had the Daylight Soul is Dead album for like the whole weekend, which was dope. And for me, then De La started to become like the Beatles in that like they completely reinvented themselves every time they came out because De La Soul's Dead was completely sonically different than than the first one. And for me personally, I, I much preferred that like darker kind of heavier sound that came with De La Soul's Dead. And so that was amazing. And so they, they did that, you know, kind of like changed my notion of like how hip hop artists, rap artists can evolve. But then um, they also were the ones who introduced me to Jay Dilla. Um, I believe Stakes is High was, no, actually, you know what? It was probably the Far Side because um, Far Side with Running was like, you know, 94, 95, right? Yeah. But I, I say Stakes is High when that came out was probably when I was like, yo, this is like different. And like, who is this? Like, it really made me take note of the producer, even though I loved like running and, and, and drop and stuff like that, you know, but so De La like ushered in a lot of things for me. Um, and, you know, so it feels like they were a companion to a lot of pivotal moments in my life. You know, what's interesting, too, about them is, you know, De La really asserted the role of the album you know you and i have spoken a lot and we we've talked about this of why sometimes it's important we'll talk about this later perhaps you know to compare an album from 1986 to an album from 96 and in that 10-year window you have de la not only making each album different you know and I, I really that point cannot be um overstated but they because of skits, because of the way their albums were sequenced, you wouldn't just scan through to find your favorite song. You had to like press play, like it was still, you know, old school, just put on the LP and lean back. And that has a ton of value. I think every artist that puts out a project today, you know, at the highest level, dreams of undivided attention and not somebody scanning through. And, you know, in the cassette tape, the CD and the LP era, De La did that for sure. And then on top of it, 
you know, just like the music having many layers, the lyrics did too. And Dave and Pastanus, you know, you listen, there's still songs that are crystallizing for me because they spoke in a lot of metaphor, not just simile, but there was a whole, you know, glossary of, of slang terms that they used internally for things, the three guys and Prince Paul and their associates, you know, and, and the whole native tongues. But I love that, you know, De La made you feel like you were in on the joke, even though it's not all lighthearted. And I think your point about De La Soul is dead. The fact that these guys were emotionally um, in touch with themselves enough to make an angry album. They didn't like being called the hip hop hippies or, you know, the comparisons to, you know, Sergeant Pepper's, like they didn't embrace all of that. So they constantly looked at what their image was and, and took the reins of their own brand and made it fun, even down to their most recent album in, in 2016, which I listened to yesterday, um, which I spoke of, you know, they, they funded that through fans and exceeded their funding, you know, what, two, three, four times over in a matter of hours. Um, and in doing so, I don't think they did that just because they asked for it. I think that De La succeeded in that even down to that, they were innovative. If you would have contributed, you know, I think it was like 1,000 to five, some, 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 you could go record shopping with Maceo. You could, you know, I think it was Dave had a collection of boom boxes and he would give one. Like everything that they did was fan, fan forward and interactive long before internet and social media. And I just really, really value that about a group. And whether you were a freshman in college or in junior high school, um, that relationship lasted. And that's why, again, the news, um, you know, those two groups I mentioned, you know, I was very much um, on the front lines of covering the passing of Guru in 2010. And to come back and watch one of your other favorite MCs, um, somebody who changed your life and had a lot to do with what I've done with my life, um, to write that or, or do that research in a matter of minutes, it's not uh, it's not easy. Is it? I know it's not for anybody to receive that information over the last week. Yeah, you know, so I've heard some tributes and, and actually not as many as I would have hoped for, um, you know, uh, about Dave and most have really focused on Dela as a unit rather than him as an individual. So I want to take some time to talk about him as an individual. Um, you know, you want to, you want to, did you want to break down kind of his? Yeah. And I, I think it's so interesting that you say that too. Like, you know, the other great groups of hip hop, let's look, you know, you got, you know, Outkast and Wu-Tang Clan and NWA and a tribe called Quest and um, Mob Deep, Gangstar. Yeah. They all had the opportunity for solo projects, you know, mm -hmm. some, you know, Prodigy and Havoc have decorated solo careers. Guru went into Jazzmatazz, premiere produced for, you know, a litany of artists, you know, Tribe, all three of those guys, you know, not including Jerobi, but like those three guys, whether you're talking about Lucy Pearl or Tip Solo Project or, or Fife's two albums, they all did things. They all had identities. And Daylon never, you know, the sum of their parts was always greater than the individual. And they were very deliberate about that because I'm sure over time, especially, you know, being part of a very commercial label in the nineties, I'm sure there were opportunities there. And if not in the nineties and the two thousands, and even in the years where De La was hemmed up um, by contract disputes, I mean, between 2002 and 2004, I've, I've read that De La wasn't even sure who and if they were signed to after Tommy boy was acquired by Warner 
Um, and then they came back out on Sanctuary with Matthew Knowles running that label. So, you know, in that window, you know, hip hop music industry is always going to make a buck. And those guys never really branded themselves too much. Um, not because not for lack of opportunity. There was one project that came out about 10 years ago, um, plug one and plug two. And that's even how they worded it. And it was a, a special, you know, release of, of Dave and Postanus without Maceo and another producer and it came out on duck down, but I don't, I wouldn't even necessarily qualify that. I think that was just an opportunity for the group to just make a little statement. And, and as they regrouped and figured out what they were doing. Um, but to your point, well, you also did, you also didn't see the drama, you know, that, accompany some groups you never heard about squabbles or anything like that they always seem to move as a unit you know and you know before we get into days like individually um you know other groups have had these kind of losses we've seen that with, with tribe and uh with mob deep and others um and it has affected the groups in different ways tribe was able to put together a posthumous album and even tour um, without five. I know that um, Havoc has done that too, to some degree with guest artists and things like that. But can you see a world where De La is able to, to, to tour or continue as De La Soul without Dave, given how integral, you know, Run DMC has done it a little bit without Jam Master J, but yeah. they were such a core tandem. You know, do, do you see that as a possibility? I mean, it's so, it's so hard for me to speculate. I mean, this is coming off of, you know, this month, Posthumous appeared, you know, at the Hip Hop 50 tribute at the Grammys, and it was just him. And, you know, all in the lead up, which was very short, because we knew there was going to be Hip Hop 50, but we didn't know the artists until, I think, Saturday or Sunday, and we obviously didn't know all of them. But when I saw that, um, similar to Scarface being alone or Big Boy being alone, um, I just chalked it up to, hey, time is time is limited. You know, I never in a million years questioned that, you know, there was any reason behind Dave and Maceo not being there. Um, I wonder, because even when when De La won a Grammy alongside the Gorillas, like they brought Maceo with them. They brought, you know, as if it would never even be in question. Like these are three guys, but you want to have a conversation about how some groups have kind of faded out the DJ. De La never even did that. Maceo is very much part of the unit. I'll be curious. I think maybe um, akin to Tribe, we might see some very meaningful performances of some kind. But I am um, imagining a world where there's a De La Soul tour, like there was a few years ago with, I think it was called the Gods of Rap tour. It's all speculative, but I are on the side that it's, I don't, I don't see that happening. They, they would, they might come up with a different name of some kind, because obviously Poss and Mace you know, have legacy and, and and livelihoods, but this one is 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 really hard. Yeah, I see it as almost like TLC, you know. Uh, but even then, it was three vocalists instead of two. Yeah. When you go down from two to one, it's it's just a very different entity, in my opinion. And it's tricky too because you know, Tribe, you know, especially in their 2016 reunion campaign, um, they had you know they have people like Jerobi and Consequence. They have other people in the group, you know that that can create a presence. I'm not saying they, they, they take on the vacancy, but you still get the idea of a movement. And with De La, I mean, you know, there were other people within the cipher on certain albums, but it was really just three guys, always and forever. And, um, you know, I've yet to see uh, Poss or Maceo, um, you know, 
speak publicly about this. I yeah. so so to your point, you know, there hasn't been a lot of space for individuality in in this group, and I've I've spoken of it other times in on this podcast when we looked at the list of 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 um, top five you know MCs. I think that that comes at a cost sometimes to De La, and I, I've gone on record and said, you know, um, members of the group have been in my top five at times, but Dave on his own, um, Brooklyn born, as I believe Maceo is as well, but uh, raised in Amityville, Long Island. And these guys met in high school, um, really started making demos, as I understand it, in 87, 88, with the kind of energy and individuality that I spoke of. Um, and for Dave too, you know, David Jossilaire, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, you know, he's a Haitian American artist. And I think that's important to talk about, especially in hip hop 50, like, you know, um, this culture that you and I are part of, um, you know, it, it, it comes from black and brown immigrants, you know, folks that, that came from the Caribbean, the West Indies and brought elements of those cultures here. So I think you're remiss to talk about Dave and not talk about, you know, some of that heritage and how it probably leads to a spectrum of other music. Um, but yeah, when I mean, I think of him as an artist, I think of his raspy voice. Um, and right from the onset, you know, really um, pushed individuality. You know, um, you took a you take a record like Me, Myself and I, which, you know, is super polarizing. I think it it was a reverberating song for the group that put a lot of people onto the map of De La Soul that might not have even been hip hop consumers in 89. Um, you know, it had a very accessible video. They had the flowers, the colors, you know, all of that, the way that their artwork and branding was marketed. But, you know, Dave on that joint says, right is wrong when hype is written on the soul. De La, that is, style is surely our own thing, not the false disguise of showbiz. And like, again, that is... That's poetry, but like you break it down and just there in four bars, they are talking about, you know, being your own individual, not not pushing the industry line, you know, the value of inner soul, you know, and from the onset, I mean, for a teenage MC to come out with even just a set of bars like that, let alone an album full of quotables is insane to me. Um, and over time, you know, true of Poss as well, but but Dave just I think rapped about the complete package. You know, one of my other favorite songs of theirs is, is, is Trying People, which was later. That was the um, one of the AOI albums, I believe the second one. I think the second one. And, you know, he rapped about crying, you know, and, and dealing with what appears to be depression and, you know, loved ones hurting him. And then you have joints like, you know, and De La Soul is Dead, where these guys let people know that they were not pushovers or suckers. So you get that whole spectrum and you talk about being, you know, of a similar age, you look at your life situations and your circumstances, whether that applies to, you know, manhood and the identity of being a man or dealing with, with, with women and, and intimate, you know, like De La travels that whole spectrum as we live it. And Dave is very much at the onset of that. And, you know, just comparing it to other groups, I would never say that there's a lead MC of De La Soul. I think Poss and Dave, as brilliantly um, as any group, you know, I, I often maintain an outcast. I, I really believe that those guys are, are equally talented, but there's no lead MC in De La Soul. I think you look at other groups and a case can usually be made, 
but these guys were two well-suited complementary MCs that steel sharp and steel with across all of these albums and songs. Yeah, you know, when I when I listened, I've, I've, I've listened a lot to the catalog lately too, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, ripped a lot of my CDs onto digital format, so I've got the entire catalog, and I was listening to Balloon Mind State yesterday. I've listened to both Artificial Intelligence and AOI Bionics in the last couple of weeks. I even started that before, you know, his passing, just anticipation of them hitting DSPs. And as, as, as I was listening yesterday, I really paid attention to how even like introverse they would wrap together. You know, it wouldn't be like standard eight and eight. A lot of times one would do four, another would do four, sometimes two. And, you know, and to me, it was almost like what Run DMC and EPMD were doing, you know, where it's that back and forth, that that interactivity, where it is all about equal. You know, they are they are one unit, not like two guys happen who are rapping together side by side. They are like a truly like living, breathing organism. So I agree with that. You know, I, I listen to verses like Ego Tripping, where he, he said, this has always been one of my favorite lines. He says, I changed my pitch up, smack my... I never did it, right? Um, you know, where other people are about being hard, he's going, they're going out of their way to say, nah, man, I'm not about that lifestyle. That's not how I rock. And, you know, Dave, I think presented, uh, you know, that kind of raw side too, you know, um, when you listen to Biddy's in the BK Lounge and, and, and verses like that, definitely can get rugged, but, um, you know, was really more showcasing the diversity rather than embracing a particular aspect of lifestyle. Your point about the interplay is why Dayla had one of the best live shows in the business too. Like, um, I do believe that you can look at a show. Um, I went on tour briefly, you know, I mentioned this recently in a podcast, but in 2008, I think, yeah, 08, I went on Rock the Bells for like five or six dates around the country and on that tour was the Far Side, which is another group um, that, you know, I think is a little different than Daylight. Both work with Dilla, but the Far Side, you know, basically since their second album has has had a lot of issues. And even going from the first album to the second album, changing producers, all of that, there's a lot of um, acrimony within that group, which is no secret to anybody that's been following even down to the last year. And I think that it it shows in the live show. I think it shows that these are individuals that are coming together sometimes for a check. You know, they talk about Sam and Dave, you know, one of my favorite, you know, soul groups of the late 60s. And those guys didn't speak the minute they got off stage after a certain point. I mean, most of their success. And I wasn't there, but I can only imagine that lends itself to everything else. And I remember seeing Day Love, seen them a number of times in my life the love was palpable on stage and the way they picked up off of each other, the interplay, it, it, it really made hip hop come alive on stage. And that's important to me because I think that the greatest of the great, you know, hip hop artists can do that. And I think there's a lot of artists that tour and don't enhance the albums and the music. And De La is, is an example of how to do it on the highest. So you saw them live. Did you ever get to meet De La or Dave? Yeah, the first time I was actually backstage at one of the Brooklyn hip hop festivals, and I was with our colleague Justin Hunt, who was interviewing De La at the time, I believe, for Brooklyn Bodega. And um, I walked up. I think that was 2010. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. It was outdoors, good weather. Um, yeah, 2010. And 
Um, he was in the middle of something, but I had never met them. I'd never spoken to them. I'd just been, you know, a super fan. And unlike Gangstar, with where with you and before our paths have met, you know, I, I had the opportunity of knowing Guru, you know, fairly well from a media perspective and, and covering DJ Premier quite a bit over the last 20 years. But I never had met De La until 2010. So I just it was one of those, like, gave him dap, told him who I was told them in a very small nutshell what they meant to me and kept it pushing. And then I've, I've alluded to it, but, um, you know, as we've covered De La's fight to own their music and, and get it to digital streaming platforms, which tragically, and which is very good that it's happening, but it's a tragedy that Dave's not around to see it from March 3rd. But um, in 2019, the very beginning of the year, I got hired by Tommy Boy Records to um speak to De La and Prince Paul about the significance of it coming to streaming platforms and about the 30th anniversary of Three Feet High and Rising and Dave of the three guys was the three guys plus Paul was the one I spoke to the most and um obviously history knows that weeks after we spoke and I began to work on this job um not only did it not come into streaming platforms but the group who hadn't been signed to Tommy Boy for, you know, 15 plus years, had a huge public, um, you know, uh, challenge with their formal label over how they were being treated, both financially and years of, of commentary and things like that. And so basically, the thing that I worked on, I don't know whatever became of it. But those discussions, it was it's wild to think of, yielded to eventually what's going to get us to March 3rd but Dave was nothing but kind nothing but gracious um gave me so much of his time as did Postanus I'd spoken to Maceo more than the other two guys previously in the past but um De La is one of those cases where the guys are behind the scenes as they are as you as you think they are based on their music and image and I got to tell you as you know I mean that's so refreshing because there are cases where artists that you look up to um, don't always come across that in exchanges. And when you think of the context of why I'm speaking to these guys, you know, for a label that they have a long, complicated history with and, and music that has denied them compensation for years and years and years, and they're cool with me just as a middleman, I think that's very telling. Yeah, absolutely. I got to meet Poss and Dave one time. Um, you know, you mentioned that the, the Kickstarter that they did. Um, we actually played a pretty significant role in that. And I remember our post that we did about the, the fundraising reached a million people or more on Facebook. Um, I became friendly with their manager, Brandon Hickson, at the time. Uh, I, was at a, I was a keynote speaker at the first Brooklyn Hip Hop Festival, um, you know, kind of conference that they did leading up to the, 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 the actual uh, festival day and met like Brandon there. 16 about yeah, I think that was 2016. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, but I met them later that year in August uh, at a Samsung event, uh, some sort of event they were doing. And like you said, man, like down to earth, super kind, very humble, um, very easy to talk to. I got a picture, which was a, a highlight and just good dudes, man. So, yeah, but I didn't have a, as long of an interaction as you did, which is is pretty awesome. Well, yours was in person and I'm, I don't have a photo. And actually, I've said this before. Um, you have kind of taught me the value of 
having an image, not just for reasons like this, but to document the things that we do. And I, my career started, like I said, in 0102. It wasn't until 2005 I ever asked for a photo. It was with Premiere. And lately, um, I don't go out of my way, but those photos mean something to me, you know, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you have that. But as, as far as Dave, one thing I'll say is, you know, his, his family hasn't um, released a statement on specific cause of death or anything like that. And, and Paz and Maceo have remained pretty much uh, quiet during this time, which is more than understandable. But in 2016, they put out the, and, the, and the anonymous Nobody album, the one that resulted from the crowdfunding and is Grammy nominated, um, goes to number one on the hip hop charts when it drops. Definitely um, fans showed how much they miss De La. And I listened to that album yesterday at the gym and I listened to it a lot in the year and change it after it dropped, but I hadn't in a while. But when that album released the next year, um, they put out a, a video for one of the first songs in the album, Royalty Capes, which again, just speaks to De La um, using symbolism very effectively and, and kind of talking about their place in the game, even if it's challenging and murky and hard to understand. But when they put out the video in 17, before you get to the actual music video, you see Dave at his home in Maryland, um, revealing that he's been, been, been battling um, a heart condition and that he wears an apparatus that shocks his heart. And we covered that at the time on AFH and very serious because these are guys that we, you know, had not known a whole lot about personally beyond the music. They weren't folks that, you know, stay in the news cycle or let the public know a whole lot about what's going on, but that was a wake up call. And in listening yesterday to that album, so much of that album is a reminder that, you know, time is finite and legacy is important. And, you know, everything that De La has stood for in the, you know, nearly seven years since that album came out really comes to life when you re-listen to it. But yeah, he was battling that. And in 2020, um, during a time when you and I were not publishing on Ambrosia, we thought, you know, um, we'd kind of sunset the days of site coverage, Dave went back in the hospital, um, which was not highly reported on, but it was it was made public. But it's very clear that he's been battling, um, you know, a congestive heart condition. And that is what I think a lot of us are, including the New York Times, you know, are, are, are drawing comparison to or and, and knowing that he's not here right now. And it's important to note because, you know, the public has been aware of this for over five years. Yeah, man, you know, you're 39, uh, just newly turned 39, but entering your 40th year. And, you know, what I say to people is that 40 is when the warranty expires on your body. You know, um, it's when you can sleep the wrong way and end up like in pain for a couple of weeks or, you know, reach down to like pull up your sock in the wrong way and like have to go see the doctor and do rehab like 40 is when these things start to change, but more importantly, and on a more serious note, it's when we got to be super vigilant about our health, you know, going to get checkups or blood pressure, eating properly, exercising, you know, all these things uh, take on increasing importance. You know, the day before the Dave died, I've told you, but I lost a fraternity brother, the first in my chapter to, to go at age 51. He'd had an aneurysm like a week before, and I found out later that he um, had high blood pressure and had not been taking his medication. 
I'm not sure if that like contributed to it or or not, but you know, that's just a, a something to say to like any listeners, man. Just take care of yourselves. Go out, get that annual physical. Make sure you're getting your blood work. Do everything you can because um, it's not. We can't take it for granted. No, I um yeah, I shared with you, but you know, I turned 39 last month, and I made a pledge to myself that I would turn 40 in better help with or you know better health of what's within my control than I did at 30 and you know I've made a lot of I'm making a lot of lifestyle changes with that in mind just because you know in the process of of getting married and potentially expanding the family let alone just the people I love and care about I want to be here and I have a father that's had some health conditions recently and you know is regularly talking about this being you know a closing season of his life and that affects me greatly just knowing that. And I also know I'm, I'm so blessed to have a father at this point in my life. So I look at all of that and, and take audit and, and more than, I mean, as much as that, I should say is, you know, so many of our professional friends, so many of the artists that, that we're inspired by and look up to, you know, we're, we're covering or reading about on a daily basis and, you know, death is all around us. And I think we all need to just do what we can to choose life. Yeah, man. So on a positive note, what are, what are some of your favorite day verses? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Balloon Mind State, I Am I Be, like, that's probably my favorite day last song. Um, you know, you spoke about what you learned um, from Ego Trippin. <laughs> that song may, may as well hand you a manuscript of, of how to live your life. And I, I love that joint. Trying People, I think just shows the depth and range and you know, when, when people act like vulnerability is new to hip hop with the late 2000s, um, that's a great example of why that's not the case. It's been around for a long time. Um, that chippy side of Dave, I listened to um, the grind date on Friday night and verbal clap. I mean, he really shined on that album and he shined on Balloon Mind State. Um, and, you know, I was reading a lot of uh, the other retrospectives and, you know, I mentioned the me, my, myself and I, but also, um, you know, in that in that dark period for De La when they weren't, you know, able to put out albums regularly and they were just figuring out the group, they won a Grammy with the Gorillas on Feel Good Inc. And, you know, Dave did what Dave does in a lighthearted way on that song. Um, and that Grammy, I know, means something to De La, especially when they had been slighted and snubbed so many times just as hip hop artists. So I think that needs honorable mention. But um, you mentioned a few, but what are some of your other ones? Yeah, I am. I be is definitely up there for me too. Uh, I mentioned stakes is high. You know, Biddy's in the BK Lounge for me is is a wild one because I don't recall ever hearing a song like it. You know, before or since. You know, it's just a random exchange between him and a person working at a Burger King. I mean, like that's just such a weird idea. It makes you think: is this like based on reality? But like to put it in a song. And filled with humor like that, incredible. It's one, and and also you know just the the beat changes and everything in that song. But his verse kicks it off and, and super dope. You know, Baby Fat uh, from AOI Bionics is another one where you know celebrating uh, body positivity before that was even a term of art, um, particularly for Black women. You know, accepting your natural self, which I think was. A very powerful message at that time, especially from a rap group where rap is, you know, seen to be be so misogynistic. That thought that, uh, that was a really big one for me too. 
Ego tripping, I mentioned before, um, you know, for, for all those reasons. And then Break of Dawn, just because that's another one where I think he and Poss are back and forth, like we talked about in a really cool way, where it's not eight and eight, it's like, you know, two and two or four and four. And, you know, that one just speaks to me as well. So, yeah, those are some of the ones that stuck out for me. It is in the BK Lounge. My first, like, real, like, you know, punch clock job was when I was 16 working. It was the summer that I saw De La Live for the first time. So it was either 99 or 2000, but I was working in a Burger King. And uh, I, I used to walk to work with some of my coworkers uh, <laughs> that happened to be women. And that song has special meaning to me. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, as everybody knows. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, this is the 50th. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of hip hop. August 11th, uh, 1973 is the date when Cool Herc and his sister Cindy uh, threw a party at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. And uh, man, oh man, oh man, everyone in the world is is starting to like uh, perk up and, and take notice of this anniversary right now. We saw an amazing 50th anniversary tribute at the Grammys curated by Questlove featuring, was it like 17 different acts? Uh, you know, 18, uh, 18 acts, like it was like 17 minutes long. It was spectacular um and cut down from quest love's initial vision of a hundred artists in 27 minutes <laughs> like the ultimate mistake yeah um but who knows man there's a special coming up on cbs a two-hour special on august 11th which may allow him to kind of deliver that in full which would be pretty cool but one of the things that has come out so billboard and i think it was billboard that did a list of the top 50 mcs last year as well uh, was the Billboard? Um, well, they've they've done one in conjunction with Vibe, where they've um, listed the top fifty MCs, and you know these are often humorous. I think a lot of them are done just for clickbait purposes. The one last year was uh, insane. I think it had Cardi B at like number fourteen or something like that, um, and uh, above Rakim and and some other like pretty notable Ice Cube. I think like it was really. Um, questionable but this one um is interesting you know i think that the collaboration with vibe and i know you know some people who worked on it personally helped because the top seven you know regardless of kind of order it's really kind of hard to dispute that these seven mcs uh belong don't belong in that like in that one through seven range um, but there's some other ones that are head scratchers. So just want to kind of quickly go through this. You know, they had Jay-Z at number one, Kendrick Lamar at number two, which I'm sure infuriated a lot of people, particularly like, like the older heads. Um, Nas, Tupac, Eminem, Biggie, and then Lil Wayne coming in at seven. Um, interestingly, right after Wayne is number eight is Drake. Um, and nine is Snoop Dogg, 10, Nicki Minaj. So... Let's talk about let's talk about the top 10 first and then we can kind of go through it and, and talk about other stuff. So how did the, the top 10 strike you? 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, what you said. I mean, that first seven is is kind of um, a version of who's your top five. Like, you know, that question and why we did a special episode during 2022, aggregating all of the artists that had listed their top fives, is because it's a it's kind of um, with with slight variation. Obviously, you're getting five out of out of you know seven or so MCs, but those are the names that we so often appear. And I have to say. Um, let me ask you this while Theo is making his cameo. Um, so one of the things I would attack like right off the bat is whether or not Wayne and Drake should be swapped. Um, so listen, I know Wayne's impact is particularly different than most. I think I, I wrote an article way back when that he was one of the first ever to write, first ever to have a major comeback. You know, uh, most artists... You know, they had one peak in their career and then they kind of sunsetted afterwards and never really rose to the same kind of um, fame they had before. Wayne, though, you know, debuted, you know, uh, particularly with the Hot Boys and, you know, stuff like Bling Bling in the late 90s. But I would say his apex was in the mid to late O's when he had a solo career, you know, kind of resurrected himself with mixtapes, you know, just like all over the place. And then the Carter series is what really kind of took him to a whole different level with the Carter three, I think being the peak of that dropping a million in one week, um, you know, album sales that is. Um, so, but, so taking nothing away from that, right. And Wayne has been prolific. He's been on a million different features and things like that, but Drake um, and, you know, first of all, let me say the criteria for this were, body of work slash achievements and by achievements it's charted singles albums gold platinum certifications second criteria is cultural impact slash influence how the artist's work fostered the genre's evolution third is longevity years at the mic fourth is lyrics storytelling skills and and then flow for vocal prowess so um those being the factors even with longevity, you know, so Wayne's been around, call it uh, 24 years, you know, 24, 25 years now. Drake has been around for 14 years, which is not a small amount of time to like, you know, a master career when you, when you especially even, when you compare even Tupac long. and Biggie. Yeah. Right. When you compare like Tupac and Biggie, who like many, many revere, but the reality is, is that both had careers of like, you know, five to seven years. Uh, so, Drake coming in at double that. And then when you list the actual certifications, there's no artist in history that has had the certifications that Drake has had, period. Like um, no rap artist for sure. And it's, it's a different era, right? So like in the, in the streaming era, there, no one is even remotely close. If there is a, an equivalence, he's approaching like literally like Michael Jackson level in terms of like his commercial impact. And so um, that being yeah. said, like I think, we did a podcast with that very theme and it got us more yeah. likes than anyone ever. Yeah, yeah, but it is what it is, man. Numbers don't lie. Like I said, there's the equivalence. And so, you know, it's a different world with streaming, but at the same time, it's also different in that you've got a million different things that can distract you and take your attention versus, you know, X amount of radio stations and like X amount of record companies and TV stations and so forth. It was just, it, it was, it's, you can't equate the two eras for many reasons, but I think there's pros and cons to, I think there's reasons why you could argue that it's more tough this, this day and age. So what Drake is doing is even more impressive, 
um, versus you could say, no, people were opening up their wallets and like buying albums and stuff like that. So, you know, I think it's, 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 um, there are arguments on either side, but in any case, Wayne and Drake, I think in, are in a much more similar era and Drake has dominated not only Wayne, but just about everyone on this list in terms of that era. Yeah. I mean, I'm not mad personally over Wayne above Drake and, and I, given the criteria that you just read, I'm not at all surprised nor angry. I'm not angry about any of this list I could give, but you know, I think that that Wayne, from the perspective of as an MC, as a rapper, has driven culture more than Drake, even if Drake has had more success. Um, and let's not, you know, they Wayne's apex, I would say, is right around Carter three. Um, you know, in terms but of give me examples of that, though. Give me examples of how he's driven culture. I think people rap different because of Little Wayne, including some of the people above him on this list. I think Wayne's style of rapping has not only influenced Kendrick Lamar, but I think that it, it for a time, um, challenged Jay-Z to switch his flow. Um, that's just- Face, that's tat, face, face tats, uh, skateboarding culture. I'm even like, going- I'm face going, tats are common now. Most people did not have face tats before Lil Wayne, and now it's like all over the place. So, yeah, but even in my explanation, I was going more more on the side of rapping. I think you make a valid point. I think that you know Wayne's not just skating, but like his his fashion sense and like leaning into you know wallets on chains and and um, just kind of like for a time you know loose fitting clothes and all of that. Like Wayne had had that command on things but in, if i'm i'm really using the rubric of of rapping because i think that drake has influenced culture crazy i mean undoubtedly he's been in my estimation you know the biggest superstar of the last 10 years plus um and you could you could make the case that it's been closer to 14 but i don't know if drake's drive of culture shows itself um musically as much as it does in other ways like well let's go back to the let's go back to the criteria though right because the billboard um is, is there yeah 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 is there a reason why you think cultural impact outweighs uh body of work slash achievements because i think in terms of body of work achievements drake beats everyone on this list in terms okay. of charted singles albums gold platinum that that's like that's just fact. That's not even speculation. You know, he yeah. he he destroys everyone on this list just with that. Cultural impact. I think Drake has had a ton of impact on artists who've come after him. Um, I think a lot of people he's, you know, um changed music, not just for rap, but in general. He's brought world music in. Uh, he brought like a lot of the the British influence in. I think um you know, uh, I won't say necessarily style, but like, you know, musical style, I think is an impact and longevity. Drake's uh, Wayne's got him there. Lyrics, storytelling. You know, I think Drake has more diversity in his subject matter and the way that he delivers his content versus Wayne, who's much more about punchlines and then flow and vocal prowess prowess. I think they're probably about even on that one. So to me, it's between cultural impact and, and achievements. And do you think that any of these criteria should be worth more, uh, weighed heavily more than others? Or do you think they're all kind of the same or it's a, it's it's a calculus? Because I asked myself that with longevity. And you look at an artist like Biggie that was really around for 2002, you know, like party and bullshit till the day that he died and the 92. life. Of Death 
Yeah, like a five. 92. Yeah, you got like a five year yeah. window. And, you know, Biggie is sitting at number six on here. But then the longevity of Biggie is bigger than those five years. Like, clearly, what Biggie means to the heart and soul of hip hop goes, you know, incredibly beyond that. Um, and I do think that Wayne, although Wayne, you know, hasn't, there's there comes a certain time around 2009, 2010, where Wayne you know, shifts gears a little bit and Drake just continues a meteoric rise. Um, but I ask myself that to answer your question of, of how longevity factors in here. I think you make a really valid point, um, you know, in terms of the records that Drake has, you know, commercial records, streaming records, chart records. It is different though. I mean, like, I am curious if music, if, if you're comparing a Drake to a Tupac, you know, where in, in 96, you know, people had to go to the store and buy the album to show that level of support to push an album to Diamond, how that looks different for an artist like Drake, because you're going to have a curiosity element that wasn't always possible when people didn't have access to every album that dropped on their phone. That's just that's just my belief. Um, I still say, like, I'm not personally upset at Wayne above Drake in these rankings. Wayne's been around longer, um, significantly longer, as you brought up. And that that point of time between, I'll say, 2005 and 2009, 2010 for Wayne was just insane. But it's not going to be measurable the way that Drake's impact has um, after a certain point, because so much of what Drake does shows up on the chart, shows up on the plaque, shows up the way that it does, which Wayne's Apex was was, you know, really two Carter albums to me and a host of mixtapes that just got the streets above, got the streets ablaze and shaped culture around them. That's that's my two pennies. Yeah, I mean, for a moment in time, it's just, you know, uh, I can I can pull up the I just sent this to some folks recently, too. Well, let me go to my bigger point. So um, we, we say we're not mad at this top seven, right? Um, do you think that everyone in this top seven has uh, an argument for being number one? That's one. Two, I, I think that Drake, out of all these people, has like the biggest argument of possibly being number two. Uh, I think above Kendrick, um, you know, when you when you think about Kendrick, I think gets elevated uh, because of the and and there's this is interesting because this isn't like one of the criteria, but I think it's like critical acclaim. Like you know, um, if you if you count critical acclaim as cultural impact, um, you know, because I'm not sure that Kendrick has fostered the genre's evolution because I don't know that people are trying to play in Kendrick's lane as much. I think Kendrick is caught of his own lane, which I believe is a continuation of Andre 3000's lane. And I don't know that um, many other people are, are trying to be Kendrick. I do think a lot of people have tried to be Drake, have tried to be Migos, have tried to be, um, you know, um, artists kind of in that category. So, but, so when you think about just this criteria, and again, this is not my personal list. I'm really just yeah. arguing based within this framework. I think there's a very strong argument that Drake is number two and am challenging for number one. I don't know that you can make that same argument for anyone else on the list, um, you know, given this criteria. But, but what, what's your reaction to that? Just so I hear you correct, correctly, are you saying Kendrick number one or keeping Jay-Z at number one? I'm saying that Drake 
um, by their, their criteria, I would put it number two and is the only person I think who could credibly challenge for number one. Is and my Drake. question to you is, do you, yeah, it's Drake. Um, I think Jay is number one based on this criteria. And I think that Drake is the closest to challenging that. But do you, do you see others as potentially being number one on this list? Based on the way you just framed that, I think, I think, I think you're onto something. I think Drake could be number one. I, I personally believe that Kendrick deserves in that conversation too, but my reasoning is not part of the criteria. My reasoning is consistency. Every one of these artists has put out a misfire in some way, with the exception of Biggie, who only lived to put out an album and a double album, and then the Junior Mafia project, which I wouldn't weight against Biggie's discography. Um, Kendrick, in my opinion, in my opinion, since Section 80 has not missed. You know, everything he's done has been to the highest level. He's advanced with it. I think every one of these other artists um, has times where they've had to, they've had a misfire and had to figure it out. Um, but again, I, that, I hear that, but, but, but I want, but I want to stick to this framework, this, okay. this, you know what I mean? Like, cause we can both like, listen, yeah. we can both have our own personal list and mine is going to be different than this, but just in this framework, you know, do you think that Kendrick is there? Because again, critical acclaim is not even listed here. Right. And consistency is not listed. I think in those two boxes, there's no one who outshines Kendrick. So if those were two criteria, then I think Kendrick, you know, but those aren't two of the criteria here. I think I think that those those two, um, Drake and Jay-Z, are in a league of their own. I think that for a time, Eminem was there. Um, and Eminem, I would say, is probably third on that list um, based within that framework. But what about you? Yeah, I mean, so let me just read this um, this Drake uh, entry uh, from Wikipedia. It says, Drake is the highest certified singles artist ever in the United States, having moved 142 million units based on combined sales and on-demand streams. That's artists, right? That's not rap artists. That's not like, that's just artists, period. He's the highest certified artist in history. He holds several Billboard 100, Hot 100 chart records. He has the most charted songs of any artist, 258. The most simultaneously charted songs in a single week, 27. The most, most debuts in a week, 22. The most top 10 singles, 54. The most top 10 debuts in a week, 9. The most top 10 debuts total, 39. And the most continuous time on the chart, 431 weeks. Um, he has accumulated 10 number one singles, um, a record among rappers. You know, look, look, I could go on and on, but just, so just commercially speaking, he is so far ahead of anyone else that, um, you know, I think that, that that starts to tip the scale, you know, given that he's not behind, far behind in, in other factors too, you know? And so everyone who's ever listened to this podcast knows how I feel about Kendrick. And, you know, I think that he and Jay, you know, are, I think Jay is the GOAT personally, and I think Kendrick is a close number two. Um, so this list actually kind of like aligns with mine. Um, but, you know, in terms of the criteria, I think it's really, really tough to make an argument that that um, anyone besides Jay-Z uh, should be ahead of Drake on this. Why do you think, just in your own estimation, why Drake is at number eight based on the case you just made? It's an interesting question. I think that, um, I think that, 
these lists, even the people who make them sometimes lose sight of the criteria, you know, and ultimately it kind of becomes about one, I think a lot of times it's about clicks. And the one that we talked about last year was, I think, deliberately controversial in order to like generate conversation. This one to me feels more intentional. And I think that they probably were judging this list based on different criteria than they listed. That's that's my guess. What do you think? It's challenging, too, when you have multiple people working on a list. And I don't know how, um, you know, ultimately the rankings were decided. Again, I'll see you said it, but there's people that I admire and respect that worked on this list. There's people that I've worked with closely in my career that worked on this list, contributed um yeah i mean i think your i think your assessment is probably accurate one of the things that i found a little bit concerning about this list is at the top of it they made clear that this was north american rappers and they used slick rick as a deliberate example of why slick rick is not included because he's british born um slick's you know rick's not on the list nor is mf doom who's british born nor is 21 savage I thought that that is an interesting criteria. I mean, I understand that there are artists in other countries that make a lot of noise in their respective communities, but why do you think um, that was such a factor? And and do you believe that a Doom or a Slick Rick or a 21 Savage should be treated as English artists? So it's... It's an interesting question. The the thought that I had when you said that was, oh, this is that's the bad bunny rule. I think that, you know, bad bunny, if you classify him as a rapper, right? Uh um, you know, is the biggest artist in the world right now. And so given that criteria would have to be on this list and probably pretty high because he's been doing it for a long time too. So I think that that was their way to try and make it truly about like, you know, uh, kind of traditional rappers. Um, I do think, and I wonder even if that would rule out like a, a doom because, uh, you know, doom, even if he was born, um, elsewhere grew up in the U S uh, same with 21 Savage, you know same what I mean? I, I think kind of second, second, same with Rick. So, so, uh, right. So, um, yeah, so I think that was kind of a cop out for like, oh, we're not going to include include some of these guys. Um, but I, I don't, I, I think I don't know that Doom would have been on the list at all, or Twenty One Savage. Under that criteria, I think there's, I think they had boxes they wanted to check, and you know, we want to have X amount of representation from the '80s, '90s, O's. You know, um, is 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 one box they want to have. Um, both genders covered, uh, or male and female rappers covered. Um, and so we have Nicki Minaj at number 10, which you put in, you think is too high. I think that is too high as well, you know, particularly given, well, all the criteria, right? Like um, uh, to put Nicki ahead of Kanye, uh, period, you know, Kanye, 50 Cent, uh, DMX, um, who else? Even Lauren Hill, right? Like um, uh, Dr. Dre. And let's talk about that too. Like how important do you think it is that people write their their rhymes? Because, you know, Kanye and Dre being on this list. And little um, yeah. Yes. So so I think I think they were trying to check some boxes, you know what I mean? And that led to some 
kind of wonky placements. But what do you think? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect in 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 the different factors of that criteria, because if you want to talk about um, you know cultural impact and influence and longevity, Dr. Dre, you can't have at the bottom. But also, I think we're all aware as hip hop fans that okay, Dre doesn't write his own rhymes. He's always been perceived as more of a producer than a rapper, although he has at least two classic solo albums, arguably, I, I would say um like it, there's just a giant disconnect here you know one of the things that that's big on here is snoop dogg is number nine and i think if you saw an mc list stated that way seeing snoop dogg at number nine would raise an eyebrow but if you want to talk about longevity and impact i mean snoop dogg's hand is in everything but with that if we're going to do that um one of the people that has spoken out against this list is ice cube is at number 18 so, you know, and I look at both Cube and Snoop as guys who, um, you know, started with started with hip hop, obviously have classic albums under their belt and then have done all of these other things. But to have that kind of a disconnect in ranking just gets confusing to me, especially without more of a rubric for explanation. Yeah, let me ask you this. So again, body of work, achievements, cultural impact, influence longevity lyrics and flow do you think that had kanye not had the year he had last year he would be ranked higher on this list because i mean he checks off all those boxes in a major way and sales and cultural impact it's hard to say there's been anyone bigger uh in terms of cultural impact in the last 10 15 years so what what's your thought on that absolutely i think so i think that Anytime you come out with this list, you're dealing with a little bit of politics um, because you know that the fourth wall is going to push back. You want to accommodate that. And, and we are not in a season, and deservingly so, of giving Kanye flowers right now um, when he's brought a lot of shame to his own legacy. Um, so, yeah, I think 100 percent that, that that ranking shows of like, OK, Kanye's here, but nah, we're going to like, we're going to look at the guy whose whose business is just falling apart right now. It's been a minute since he's made, you know, a truly great album, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinions. So they put him there. That's, that's what I think. All right. So you put a question in our, in our prep of do these do more harm than good, you know? So we've attempted to answer this question, AFH as well. But we did it in a very democratic way. We said, let's let's not us kind of like opine from on high because everyone's got their own opinions. Let's get the opinions from millions of people who are like steeped in this culture, who love it. And, you know, let the people decide who's number one. Um, and, you know, when we did that back in 2015, the people decided Eminem was number one. Uh, Tupac was number two. Um, you know, those would not have been our choices, but I actually am not mad at either one of those. And for a while, it, it was pretty neck and neck between those two. Um, do you think these do more harm than good? I think they ruffle feathers. Um, and let's not forget, I mean, Billboard and Vibe, although, you know, they're under the same umbrella these days, are two very different publications. I mean, Billboard has always been about commercial success and, you know, charts and radio exposure and all of that, you know, vibe from inception um, was a very, very different publication. But I think that you put these out 
and I have to tell you, I mean, Jay might have thought it was cool. I don't know that Kendrick cares. I don't know that Nas, you know, feels the way. Number three is pretty honorable. Tupac and Biggie aren't here, and I don't know that Eminem gives a damn. So you you honor that, but what you end up doing is creating a lot of discourse, which is good because it brings attention to your list and your brand. But the loudest voices I've heard in this conversation are not people applauding this list. They're people that are saying, you forgot so-and-so, you didn't even include. I don't like my ranking. I don't like my favorite artist ranking. Where is my bandmate? And, you know, in the name of Hip Hop 50, in the name of celebrating this thing, I think that that gets a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a disconnect. Yeah, you know, I think, um, I think it could have achieved what it wanted to achieve if done without a ranking, you know. Um, now, obviously, you're still going to get people feeling like they're omitted from the list. But if you do it without the ranking, if, if you just listed these 50 artists as the top 50 artists of the last 50 years, I, th I think it's a pretty strong, almost bulletproof list. I think it's very difficult for people to argue that the list as a whole is not a good representation of the greatest artists in, in this in this genre. I think the ranking is where it starts to get, you know, in trouble. I think that's a really, that's a good takeaway. I mean, one of the more innovative things that I've seen in the last decade with this is Complex, you know, another publication, you know, we read, we respect, um, people that we've worked with contributed to this list, but they did a rap yearbook of every, since 1979, the year of Rapper's Delight, the biggest MC, the biggest rapper of that particular year. To me, that was really interesting. And of course there were repeats, there's still discourse. I believe they went to the trouble of kind of posting runners up, but that's an innovative way of doing this. Um, you know, all, all, all respect to Billboard and Vibe and the people who worked on this, but this discussion continues all the time and it always will. It was 2019 when, um, was it Ebro kind of kicked things off with the best rappers list and everyone was posting their note cards and we, you know, AFH covered I mean, Mike Tyson's, we covered you know, a few different people. And that was a great way to show folks our own personal opinions and where we differ and argue. But there wasn't a rubric that was purely subjective. But when a publication does it, even in laying out that and in, in kind of the way you and I are, are kind of uh, not arguing, but but debating and questioning somebody like Drake's rankings, it just gets super murky. But I think you're absolutely right. The ranking is what makes that really challenging. Were there I came up with some, um, but were there names that were missing on this list that really kind of were your immediate takeaways? Yeah, I, I do think that Doom was a big one because Doom, you know, so I get it, right? Where Doom like is lacking according to their criteria is the commercial sales because Doom was 100% underground. But his influence was so off the charts, like, you know, pun intended, yeah. that I, I think there's, you know, so again, I, I would want to know, I want to have a better understanding of how they weighed these criteria, if, if they were meant to be equal, or if it was meant to be a calculus. And so if you over-indexed on one, you could under-index on another and so forth. Because uh, if that's the case, then I think Doom absolutely should be on here. Um, you know, everyone else, you know, there's an argument for tons and tons of people here. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at your list and, um, you know, I, if every single one of those people was, was on the list, uh, you know, I'd be cool with that. And you, you can read that. But I also, 
to some degree, I'm okay with them or, you know, probably 25 others not being on the list just because when you think about it, when you step back, there's probably 100 to 150 artists who equally deserve like this top 50, um, you know, categorization. And it's really just kind of random. There would be obvious omissions if you didn't have Jay, you didn't have M, you didn't have Biggie and Pac and, you know, pretty much everyone on the top 10, except for like Nikki in the top 50, you would look crazy. Right. But, um, but, but I think there's an argument for a lot of these people, but you want to, you want to mention your list? Well, yeah. I mean, in brief, these are the names that jumped out at me and and I'll just say, you know, Fat Joe made the point and it's February. It's the month um, we lost Big L and I believe the month he was born, but Joe said Big L should be on this list. I looked at it and I thought, you know, um, in the wake of obviously what happened, but even if this, if this list came out January, um, I feel like Dave and Postanus make deserving cases to be there. Um, Q-Tip is on the list. I was curious about DMC. You have Rev Run on here, but no DMC. No no too short. Um, you have somebody like Bun B who, you know, expanded hip hop sound um, regionally and in terms of its, its music. Bun has platinum and gold plaques. But at the same, you have, talk about longevity, too short's been putting out stuff since 1982. So omitting that is, is, is interesting to me. The fact that you have Ghostface but no Raekwon. Um, and then there's just a list of people, Pharaoh, Corrupt, Big Boy, Tretch, Royce the Five Nine, I'll say Fonte, Elzai, AZ, no Cool G Rap, no Cool Keith, no Guru, and no MF Doom. Those, and I hear you, not all of those artists may fit that criteria, but again, when I look at a bun, a lot of those artists have plaques, have have noteworthy songs. And by no means am I am I decrying Bun, but I gets a little bit murky when you get to the bottom of the list. But let me ask you, with the idea of a DMC or a Raekwon or a Big Boy not making the list, but having their counterparts on it, do you think that there's an element of, okay, we put on we put on Rev Run, so we don't have to put on DMC. We put on Jadakiss, so we don't have to put Styles. Maybe, but it's weird. I just had this conversation yesterday, man. Um, it's interesting for me how in these groups, I, I think a lot of us tend to gravitate toward one MC more than the other. You know, uh, for me, I was I was always a bigger fan of Fife than Tip. You know, respect Tip, love his voice, but Fife was the guy for me, you know, and Andre is the guy for me. And for Run DMC, DMC was the man for me, you know, uh, no disrespect to Run, but like DMC is what made Run DMC Run DMC to me. So I don't think it's, yeah, you know, and and so I can understand, and we didn't talk about this, but like, you know, the Ghetto Boys, um, Scarface and Willie D had a pretty public um, exchange about the fact that Scarface appeared on that Grammy tribute without Willie D and performed My Mind's Playing Tricks on Me, a Ghetto Boys song. Um, I don't think it's enough in those instances to just include one. You know, I think even if, and to your point about De La, with the gorillas, you know, with them bringing up Mace, even though he wasn't a part of that project. I think even if the person doesn't perform and is there almost like in a hype man capacity, you at least show that respect that this was a group effort. And so I I think in these instances, you see sometimes ties on these lists too, right? So I think that it would have been okay to have both listed at a particular number, you know, because the truth is, is that for a lot of these groups, 
uh, one doesn't exist and one doesn't have the acclaim without the other one. And so I, I would like to see Big and Andre recognized in, in their slot and running D in their slot and Dave and Poss in their slot and so forth. You know, I think I think that would be a more artful way to handle it. Interesting. One other just question, and, and then I think we can move on, is, you know, this list has Curtis Blow at number 23. And, you know, Curtis is credited with the full, first solo artist with a gold album, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, he did a lot of commercial commercial breakthroughs for the culture, but he's above an artist like Melly Mel, who um, came in, I'm looking for Mel's ranking, at number 48. Does that give you a sense of, of what this list values versus what it doesn't. Now I know Mel and Curtis are contemporaries, but I think that one is revered lyrically differently than the other. Yeah, I think again, this is checking boxes. This is a really weird one to me, you know, um, and, and that's the thing you made the point about like different people who made the list, maybe like leaning into different criteria. Um, you know, maybe whoever did this portion was more into the sales than the, the, the impact. Uh, but I don't know that Curtis Blow, you know, I know Curtis Blow had the first album and um, he may have had the first gold or platinum single. But I know the message is one of the biggest records like of all time, both commercially and critically and completely changed the course of rap music. Without the message, I don't know that we're, we're here because it made rap relevant, you know, um, so to have Curtis Blow ahead of Melly Mel is a head scratcher for me. And to have him 25 spaces ahead is, I think, uh, really, really well. Like, I, I think there's an argument for Melly Mel being in the top 20 for sure, maybe even a little bit higher. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that one was a head scratcher for me. We agree. And one of the things, and this isn't to play the AFH trumpet, but I will in one instance, you know, when we in 2014 did our first ever Finding the Goat, the one you spoke of that Eminem ultimately won, that list began, I forget what the number was, it was damn near like 100 of how many artists we pulled from. Do you remember? Oh, the no, 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 it was like 168. Yeah, it was insane. And with that, yeah, we tried to, you know, highlight the, the Daves, the, the ecstasies from Houdini, the, you know, the, the, the Rev Run and the DMC. And I think that that's important when you have these discussions to, um, which is a perfect bridge between what we spoke about earlier of, of you take a group sometimes and it's hard to recognize the individual. You know, you look at um, some that just have a standout lyricist, you know, but in other cases it gets super duper murky. And when you start to rank, there's a consequence that crews can suffer. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, we agree on that very much. Yeah. Yeah, man. So um, let's move on to some other things that happened this week. Uh, there's some business moves that are really, really interesting. Um, you know, well, for, first of all, Jay-Z uh, sold the remaining stake of his um, a liquor company, right, for another like $500 million or $600 million yeah. to, um, yeah, you know, so Jay now has liquidated uh, over $1.5 billion in the last year and a half or so between the sale of title and sale of one portion of his alcohol brand and then the, the other half. So, man, uh, he got a war chest right now. Uh, I'm wondering what he's he's saving that up for. It's going to be a um, sports team? Uh, you know, um, maybe, maybe there's some speculation about that. Uh, but you know, right now he couldn't do that because of Rock Nation. 
uh, because, you know, Rock Nation has a sports agent component, and so it would be a conflict of interest. But if Jay, uh, if, if you see an announcement about Jay selling his Rock Nation sports soon, you know exactly where, where he's going with that one. So, yeah. Um, but interesting, he's always making moves. But on, on the other side, so quality control, this is the label uh, owned by Coach K&P. Um, that has artists like Migos and um, little little um, little uh, baby, little little Yachty, uh, City Girls. Um, who else? A uh, little baby for a time. A uh, little baby, right, right, right. So, you know, among some of the biggest artists of the last like five years, um, you know, or five to seven years, and very distinct sound, Atlanta based. Um, there's a, a great documentary on Little Baby on uh, Hulu that I watched. Um, encourage you to watch it, even if you're not a fan. Uh, it's got a real interesting life. But these guys, you know, have been making moves. Um, they've been branching out into film and TV recently as well. But they sold their company, Quality Control, to Hive American, which is a South Korean company, for $300 million. Scooter Braun manager to Justin Bieber and, you know, Kanye at one time and lots and lots of huge, huge stars is the CEO of North American branch of, of Hive American. And so um, the deal is that uh, P and, and K, Coach K and P will continue to main control over, um, over uh, quality control in conjunction with Scooter Braun. So, you know, reporting in a Scooter Braun, but my guess is that he will kind of let them do their thing. I know that Scooter Braun is the manager for Quavo too. So I know those two have been doing business for quite some time, probably have similar vision. Um, the label launched 10 years ago, back in 2013. Um, but it's, it's interesting for me because um, $300 million is a lot of money, right? But when you start to think about the impact of those artists and the catalog that they have, I start to wonder, is it the proper value? And I, I really start to wonder that based on the backdrop of how Black-owned labels have been valued in the past. Uh, but for, before I get into that, what's your take on, on, on the sale in general? You know, it's, um, I dealt with, I dealt with uh, Coach K a long time ago when he was still working with Young Jeezy. And to watch these guys turn from, you know, music executives into building a literal empire in 10 years is insane. And I, uh, I'm impressed. It's, it's wild, but it also comes at a time where it a little bit makes sense to me. I mean, everyone is aware when you hear the name Migos that, you know, November of last year, you know, takeoff passed away. I don't know what the future looks like for that group as a group, obviously offset, and Quavo have very successful solo careers. Um, but that's that's a big question. And, you know, um, Offset was recently in a legal battle with QC over the, the, the ownership of his solo material. There have been some of the artists, you know, between Little Baby and Yachty, you've heard grumblings over the years of, you know, renegotiation and dissatisfaction. So if you can bring value to a brand and sell, um, I think it makes sense and not for nothing. I mean, these are two men. They they have to be suffering and grieving of all that's transpired just over the last six months. And so if you have an opportunity to at least take it out, but still do what you want, but know that you've monetized it in a certain way, I can empathize with that. Um, but I think to your point, the, the the value is the part that I question. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can totally understand the timing. And listen, I don't know. I don't know the numbers. I don't know what their market share was. So it's quite possible that not only did they get full value, but they might have gotten a great deal. You know, these two strike me as great businessmen and have done very well over the last 10 years, to your point. But history has not been favorable to Black-owned labels in terms of valuation in the past. Um, so, you know, just as a couple of examples, back in 1999, um, Def Jam, so the remaining 40% of its stake to Seagram's for $100 million. Um, and at the time, they had Jay-Z, Method Man, Ja Rule, and DMX was was uh, was signed and about to have a, a huge run also. So... Um, you know, even though Def Jam had, had kind of a lull in the mid '90s, uh, this was when they were kind of at their apex commercially. Um, you know, I don't know that they were ever bigger than they were at the time. And listen, forty percent for a hundred million, um, so you know, roughly like two hundred twenty-five million dollar valuation for the entire label, something like that. But when you reflect that uh, against um, Interscope, Interscope back in nineteen ninety-six, so three years before this and you know just for people um the, the record industry kept going up up and up until 2001 2001 was the apex and then everything crashed clive calder who was the owner of jive at the time cashed out uh, infamously for 2.1 billion dollars i believe it was at the very height of the market you know you had britney and um in sync and uh you know a, a lot of like big artists at that time and he had what's called a put. He was able to force RCA to buy um, the his stake at that time. And he got out just in time and the, the bottom completely collapsed with Napster and stuff like that. But so in 1996, presumably the, the market was not as high as it would have been in 1999. But uh, Interscope sold 50% of its stake to MCA. Uh, it's actually a deal that I worked on as a, a lawyer for um, you know, $200 million dollars. So, you know, they're selling, Def Jam sold 40% for $100 million in 1999. Interscope sold 50% for $200 million. So, um, you know, that's a huge discrepancy. That means they're valued at like, 200, at like $400 million versus like, you know, Def Jam's 220 or 225 or whatever the math is. At the time, Interscope had Death Row, you know, which, you know, obviously was colossal. They also had acts of their own, like No Doubt, Nine Inch Nails, and Bush. But, um, you know, that one always struck me as like a hum moment, like, you know, Def Jam, even if their market share wasn't as big, the catalog they had over 20 years was huge. And now, especially in, in years like now, when we're celebrating the 50th anniversary, we understand the value of that catalog and what that means, you know, for, for sync licenses and, you know, on soundtracks and commercials and all this other stuff. Another example is Motown. And like, I don't know that there is a more pristine catalog of music than Motown. It's still played at just about every wedding. You've got, you know, Stevie Wonder, Jackson 5, Dinah Ross, Smokey Robinson. It's music that has endured for 60 plus years. Marvin Gaye. I mean, like it just goes on and on. Um, Motown sold to MCA in June of 1988 for $61 million dollars. Okay. And so now that's 1988, right? So, okay, we were talking different numbers, you know, just to, uh, for inflation and all that stuff. But contrast that to Geffen, David Geffen, you know, um, business mag magnate sold 
to MCA in 1990 for $550 million in stock. And, you know, that value grew to $850 million in 1991 when MCA was purchased by Matsushita, a Japanese company. At the time, they had Guns N' Roses. Um, they had Don Henley, Aerosmith, White Snake, Peter Gabriel's share. had 8% market share that year. It's one of the largest independents. But, you know, um, $850 million uh, for Interscope, I mean, for Geffen, uh, you know, three years after Motown sells for $61 million, and the catalog that Motown has for like decades and decades, something smells off to me, you know. So, you know, traditionally, I think Black-owned labels have been undervalued despite the impact of the music, the commercial sales, uh, the, the longevity. So like, that's the only thing that makes me question whether or not, and I hope K and, and Coach K and P did get the valuation, but again, history has not been kind. Yeah, I mean, that that Motown point, and even that Def Jam point, because you know we've covered it on the site, but in 98, leading up to that sale, Def Jam you know, went balls to the walls. Like Foxy Brown tops the charts, Ja Rule, you know, 98 kind of makes his push. DMX had two charting albums that year, number ones, with its dark and hell is hot and flesh of my flesh. Um, you had meth, you know, like everyone, Jay-Z, we haven't even gotten to Jay-Z yet. Like they were crushing things. And you're talking about a hundred million, which is one third. And now I know that that was 25 years ago, but that was one third of what we're talking about with QC now. And then you made a, a tremendous point of like, did that business value Def Jam's archives, you know, of, you know, here we are hip hop 50, to tell that story um, and not talk about LL Cool J, or Beastie Boys, or EPMD, like so much stuff that's come out on Def Jam over the years, it's insane. And and you, the, the David Geffen to Barry Gordy to compare those two things side by side tells a wild story. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I was reading Billboard religiously at the time, and those were always two things that struck me. You know, um, no one was calling that out at the time, right? Nah, no one was. But for me, it was always like, a, huh, I wonder, you know, uh, it doesn't it didn't feel right. You know, it just didn't feel right. Well, something else um, that you mentioned earlier that didn't feel right is the way that the media and the words that they've used have portrayed another like what should feel like a good move. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you talk about the move first and I'll get into the part that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Absolutely. So Pharrell Williams, um, you know, you want to talk about longevity. Uh, really, I think Pharrell is on a 30 year victory lap right now, going from the Neptunes to becoming a solo artist, producing stuff in hip hop and R&B on to some of the biggest records, you know, just period anywhere. Um, Pharrell has his hand in anything and everything and continues to just maintain the highest level of quality. And, you know, you and I were speaking earlier and talking about the billboard list of the things and the feats that artists accomplish. I referenced, you know, Snoop and Ice Cube taking rap music and going on to do all these other things as others have. Um, Pharrell has a has a new huge feather in his cap. Um, he is the newest creative director of menswear at Louis Vuitton. I'm trying to say it like you say it. And uh, yeah, the menswear Vuitton and uh you know, that 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 role um, obviously replaces the late Virgil Abloh, who became, you know, the first uh, first you know person of color, first black man to, to have that job previously. Just something we reported on AFH. 
Yeah. And so, listen, Pharrell has a history with uh, LVMH. Um, in 2004, he worked with them, and I think in 2008, and then he's worked with Tiffany, which is also part of that company. Uh, LVMH is Louis Vuitton, Moet, and Hennessy, uh, owned by Bernard Arnault, a name that I, I, I must confess I didn't know until Kanye started talking about him, but he is the currently the, the wealthiest man in the world, um, which you know s- says a lot about how huge that company and what an honor it is for Pharrell to get it. It's considered um, maybe the most powerful position in men's fashion, um, you know, certainly for the, the biggest line. So, um, and Pharrell has always been one of those, like, who has, you know, really impacted culture, uh, you know, going back to that, like, his style has been completely unique from his hair to what he wears. One of my favorite stories is um, I went to an after party that Puffy had um, after the VMAs, I think it was 2004, and Puff had sent out these invitations where he was like, ladies, get your waxings, your pedicures, your manicures. It's like, fellas, like, you know, put on your finest suits. I mean, Versace, like Polo, like, you know, Ralph Lauren, like, you know, that kind of thing. Don't, you know, no jeans, no, no bumminess, right? And so I'm standing in line and, um, you know, I got on my tux and everything. And uh, Carson Daly, who's the host of TRL at the time comes up. And he's 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 dressed nice and everything. Um, and he's got some friends who aren't who wearing some jeans. And he's like, um, they say, um, no, I'm sorry, you know, that they, they don't need dress code. And he's like, yo, do you know who I am? I'm Carson Daly. And I say, Yeah, you know, okay, you can come in, but your friends can't. Right. And so um he said, well, you know, he says, Well, they're not coming in, I'm not coming in, he leaves. Of course, five minutes later, he comes back solo and comes in, right? Um, so I'm in there and, dude, there's food everywhere. There's lobster, like, on the table spread around. There's like, the finest champagne and everything. Everyone is dressed to the nines. Incidentally, I'm on the dance floor dancing right next to Joy Fatone from NSYNC and Giselle Bunchen, uh, formerly Miss Tom Brady. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and... Um, I look over and I see one dude who was just straight violating dress code, like just reckless, like without, and the only dude in the entire place. Right. And, but, you know, also noting that, damn, I'm at a puffy party and the last 12 songs have been produced by the Neptunes. Right. And so I see this dude, he's got on a cargo hat, t-shirt and some, some like, um, like jean shorts or like, you know, cargo shorts and, um, and, and Tim's. And it's Pharrell, right? Um, you know, and he had the right to do that because he was running the radio at that time, you know. Um, but even in a situation like that, he's going to be the, the dude who's the outlier, you know, the one who's like marching to the beat of his own drum. And he's done that time and time again. Um, you know, his work with Ice Cream and Billionaire Boys Club, like he's been at the vanguard of fashion. So did you well have, deserved. Did you have one of those big hats back in 2010? I did not. I did not have one of those derby hats. No, no sir. No, no, no. I don't. Oh, yeah, the derbies. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sir. No, neither. I'm not a hat. I'm not a hat dude. I wear a beanie when it's cold, and that's it. And I call those skull caps anyway. So, um, yeah, man. So, one, two things. So, one, I wonder if this had gone to Kanye, had he not been so radioactive. But two, the thing that disturbed me 
uh, is that in the lead, like both above, like just below the headline and also the, the, the first description in the initial paragraph, the New York Times described him, and I quote, Pharrell, Pharrell Williams, the American rapper and producer. So first of all, like, you know, you, you talked earlier about not being a blogger, right? And how that puts you in a box that doesn't really uh, recognize all the things that you bring to the table and what, you, what you've done with your career. Um, the term rapper, man, has been used, it's such a loaded term by mainstream media, because to me, it feels like a stereotype um, that is not quite positive, especially the way that most rappers have been portrayed in the media as like, you know, it's usually in connection with some sort of violence or some sort of crime or something like that. Secondly, Pharrell, is a producer of music, a producer of film, a fashion designer, an icon. Um, He's a producer you know, of the year a, at the Grammys. Like, yeah, a, a, a creative director, a singer. He is truly a multi-hyphenate in the, like the purest definition of the word. So to call him an American rapper as the first thing, I think is like... Um, I found it very off-putting. You know, later on, um, they said, um, and they, they were talking to him, and they said, still Mr. Williams' appointment to the pinnacle of high-end ready-to-wear uh, underscores an apparent trend among luxury goods makers to put their, their futures in the hands of multi-hyphenate celebrities, not designers by profession. So, listen, they had that in the vocabulary. Um, I don't know why they didn't use it up top, you know, uh, or, you know or just say Pharrell Williams, like, you know, personality or whatever so you know that was that was the only thing that like kind of like made me like take pause but you know you think i'm overreacting to that well, or like i think you make a really good point and and for me it's funny as a writer you know when you're writing an article i find that i have to use the word rapper but i try not to use it first unless for one occasion um you know if there's you know if there's an artist and something happens to um that doesn't that that's name could easily be confused with somebody else take a q-tip take dave from de la soul like just the idea of dave there's several rappers named dave um you can use it in those situations um but that is only when you need to but to call pharrell williams who 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 record like that's his name that that he's not somebody who could be mistaken for anybody else and to qualify him as a rapper um that's really cheap and especially from a publication that i i hold in high regard you know I, I listen to daily most mornings and all of that and i think there's a lot of there's a lot about journalism that i learned from the times that was cheap and yeah i i think your comparison to being called a blogger being called you know calling uh lebron james a basketball player like you are you are reducing somebody in a way that's unnecessary yeah, and it's not even what he does primarily musically, right? It's first producing, secondly singing, um, you know. The third is 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 the rapping part, you know. Yeah. So even if you're gonna put him in a musical box, like, and, and then to your point, why not just say artist, right? Like then, like, which is what he is. He's an artist. He's an artist in many genres. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, but in any case, salute to Pharrell. Um, let's go back to my Kanye question, though. Do you think that had Kanye not uh, gone off the rails in the last two to three years, shall we say, that this would have been a role that was offered to him? I don't know. I mean, Kanye had a lot of different um, 
pots in the stove. You know, he had to deal with Gap. He obviously was doing what he was doing with Adidas. I don't follow the the fashion world closely enough to know if that would be a detractor. Obviously, in the case of Virgil, you know, Off-White just continued to rise even after he was appointed director. But with Kanye, um, that I would imagine would be a concern for them and then for Louis Vuitton. And then secondly, do you really want to end up with somebody who's very publicly trying so hard to be with you? I mean, before Virgil had passed away, just weeks and months before, you know, Kanye had made commentary, including if I'm on Drink Champs, if I'm not mistaken, of why he felt that should have been him. And I don't know, like you look at a luxury brand, you look at what that means, what prestige and power and and fashion and flair looks like. I don't know if you you kind of forgive the analogy, but like give the baby its bottle. Um, that's why I think Pharrell is a really interesting choice and a deserving one. But yeah, I'll, you asked me a question, I'll ask you a question. Um, you know, with Virgil, it was different, you know, and Virgil still after that appointment was designing album covers for West Side Gun and, and you know, was able to do so many of the things he had done before. Do you think in the wake of this appointment, it will pull Pharrell away from music for a time? You know, I don't. I think Pharrell has been doing so many things. He has truly been a multi-hyphenate for so long that this is just another ball in the air for him. You know, um, in some ways, he's another person who's had a major resurgence. A lot of producers, they have an era. And then after that era, it kind of wanes for them. But he had that era from like, call it, you know, 1999 or so until... I don't know, 2008, whatever. Like he had a long, long run with the Neptunes. But then he had another run, man, in the mid-20-teens uh, mid, uh, up through the present where he's just been on a tear. Um, you know, some of his biggest songs ever, Get Lucky, Happy, Happy you know, have been like in that period. And so um, I think um, I think I think he's capable of doing anything he wants, um, you know, um, regardless of, of what else is going on. So, yeah. yeah, I think he'll continue to do music. I'm always curious what that looks like. Like, you you know, clearly that would be a very high paying position, a very powerful, important position, as you stated. But like, you know, as somebody you and I both have, you know, a few different pots on the stove and in our lives and in our professional lives. And I always wonder, you know, when, when you're busy, like making a Kendrick Lamar album or you're you're busy doing this or doing that, you know, how these other entities try to kind of give you the nudge of like, hey, you know, we still got a season coming ahead or something like that over here. But uh, I just have to speculate on that one. Yeah, man. So uh, a lot a lot happened this week. Anything else you want to co- Oh, there's a couple of other business moves. You want to talk about those real quick? Yeah. Um, 50 Cent is now secured a deal with the Fox Network, which brings um, G-Unit Film and Television over there. Um, I think this is interesting just on, on two levels. Number one, I mean, um, our colleague Justin Hunt did a really interesting TBD on the resurgence of 50 Cent and what an upcoming album and music means to him. Um, I think any hip hop head can agree that since 2007's Curtis, you know, 50's just gone in other directions. I mean, he still will drop songs. He had a big record with NLE Chopper not that long ago. Um, But, you know, his bread and butter is now film and television and um, power's done what it's done, the BMF series. But now, you know, he's at stars or he's at Fox, which is interesting 
because for all the years that 50 was at stars with those two programs, um, he was very competitive with Fox and their show Empire. So to watch him in pure 50 cent style go at somebody um, and then ultimately end up there is is just kind of the latest of a power move. And, you know, we don't know what this is going to be next. It, Fox has not given him um, exclusive so he can still make deals other places. It says that it may be um, scripted and animated, but it just shows you that, you know, there's other money out there besides music and 50 Cent is king of that. But and, you know, that's that's kind of my takeaway. What about you? Yeah, I think it's a major move, man. As successful as his work at Stars has been, and he still does, uh, he still will be involved with that franchise. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Network TV is just different. Um, it's a much, much bigger platform. Um, you know, you got, he has opportunities to launch something maybe off of a Super Bowl, which could bring, you know, tens of millions of people to his viewership. So I think that the audience that he'll reach will dwarf that. Uh, I'm curious, though, as to the other thing that comes with network, though, is more parameters around the, the standards and practices and the content. So I'm curious as to how he'll be able to show edge in the same way that he did with his star shows where there, there aren't those kind of restrictions. But aside from that, man, I, I think that I think that, that 50 just you know stays winning. And not for nothing. I mean, Fox as a as an entity, nothing says that 50 wouldn't launch something on fxx or f you know what i mean like he has the opportunity yeah. to still do some of those things because some of those networks have different parameters under the fox umbrella right yeah for sure do they have for they sure. have an ex super bowl um they have it every two or three years you know it, it rotates between the networks so they'll, they'll definitely have it sometime in his cycle and i gotta think um you know given development and it takes like a year or, or two to to produce something it might be right around then so Word. Yeah, is there anything else in the last week that's really jumped out at you? Yeah, I mean, the Fight the Power documentary, I didn't even know about this until it showed up in my YouTube feed, which is a shame, but it's a four-part documentary on PBS, executive produced by Chuck D and uh, Lori Bula, and man, it is fantastic. You know, I produced a four-part documentary for BET um, in partnership, uh, you know, I, I helped to produce one. Um, with a bunch of people, uh, but wrote for that called The Message. So I know how hard it is to put these together, um, you know, just getting all the talent and shooting, but then taking all those hours of footage and making them into like a, a, a cogent, uh, cohesive storyline is difficult. So I always appreciate seeing other people in their process, but it's really, really well done. Goes back into the I think 1950s and 60s leading up to the circumstances that helped to birth hip hop has a lot of great personalities in it. You know, Chuck D is obviously featured, KRS, LL, Fat Joe, Eminem, DMC, Melly Mel, Nelson George, the writer, Lee Quinones, uh, who was a um, graffiti artist in, in the movie Wild Style. Uh, our colleague Soren Baker, Sway, a bunch of people um, who are really heavy hitters. So I encourage everyone to check that out. You can watch it on YouTube or Amazon Prime um, or PBS if you want to go old school. But yeah. that's it. That's it for me, man. I really just I love it. And, and you know, I can feel Chuck D's fingerprints all over it because it's very like there's a canon of great hip hop documentary that I believe starts with Style Wars and into, you know, the show and Rhyme and Reason and Scratch. 
and you and I were big supporters um, of Hip Hop Evolution on Netflix. And, and this is great, but there's a huge socio-political under, you know, component that deals with racism and classism and the bigger powers that be from politics on down. And I, I, I love that. Like, that's what Public Enemy and Eminem says it in there too. Like, you know, Chuck D taught him that line about Elvis and why to reconsider somebody he had looked up to, which is complicated in the wake of what Eminem, you know, worked on that soundtrack last year. But um it's 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 great history that you're not going to get in textbooks and in school like you i i was a little bit late to the game and being able to watch it i have my uncle dan who had been texting me like three or four times like check this out and it's phenomenal and the music and the way they wove in the music into the documentary is is very stylish and rhythmic and it's just got a lot of flavor to it so it's really really high-end art for me yeah man for sure so yeah, man, I think I think that about covers it. Um, do you have a song of the week? Yeah, man. Uh you're probably gonna take this too, but um it's gonna be I am I be for me, you know. Um just once again, rest in peace to Dave. Uh, you know, super bittersweet that their music is coming on to um, you know, digital service providers in the next couple of weeks, actually. But at least he knew that was coming. And, you know, I, I think it helps to cement the legacy of De La Soul for many generations to come. And that, that's one of the finest for me. How about you? You know me very well. That was going to be my song. But um, in the interest of that and just how this week has felt in the wake of this news and just all the emotional processing, I'll go with Trying People. Um, you know, another De La joint, but both of those songs are must listen to and some of the first that I will be seeking out on March 3rd. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, until the next time. Yes, indeed. Until we do it again. But uh, thank you, everyone. Oh, and if you made it this far, please like, review, comment. Help us uh, help us spread the word with this thing. We don't do it if not for you. So shout out to the listener as well and the viewer. Word, for sure. Well, All right. Peace.